Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their core very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're happy to have a returning guest today, Jackie Bevilacqua. Longtime listeners will remember her from the Adam Yauch episode, where we discussed working with potentially difficult clients. And if you missed that one, then I highly recommend going back and checking it out, because there's a reason I asked her to come back on. Jackie's an associate at the law firm Katzi Corrins, LLP, in New York City, and her practice is focused primarily on estate planning for high net worth and ultra high net worth families and individuals. She's also a fellow graduate of Fordham Law, so yay. Welcome back, Jackie. Thanks, Dave. So the subject of today's podcast is a bit of an odd one. Former president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe. Now, I know that brutal dictators and accused human rights violators and war criminals aren't exactly the first people that come to mind when you hear the word celebrity. And I realize we're going a bit darker with this choice. But ultimately, we're concerned less with why a person is famous. We're not really trying to glorify anyone's exploits after all. Just that they are famous and what we can learn from them. And it turns out there's a lot we can learn from Mugabe, particularly in the generalized area of fear. I'm not going to delve too deeply into Mugabe's life since that's not really what matters here. But the Cliff's Notes version is that he, like many dictators throughout history, was first a revolutionary hero, leading the charge to cast aside minority white rule in what was then known as Rhodesia. Just for some context, because in any discussion involving the history of Africa, context matters a lot. Rhodesia, which eventually split to form the modern nations of Zimbabwe and Zambia, was named after Cecil Rhodes of Rhodes Scholar fame, and, more tellingly, the founder of the De Beers Diamond Company, which has historically had a, let's say, less than positive impact on the indigenous people of the African continent. Like many heroes, Mugabe lived long enough to see himself become a villain, wielding corruption, racial prejudice, anti-Western sentiment, and a loyal force of war veterans to maintain his rule, which lasted some 40-odd years in one form or another. He was eventually forced to resign in 2017 at the sprightly age of 94. And even then, he somehow managed to negotiate full immunity for himself and his family and a $10 million severance payment out of the deal. The unemployment rate in Zimbabwe at the time of his ouster sat at roughly 50%. He lost a battle with cancer in Singapore in 2019. The exact details of his estate are still being sussed out, and we're unlikely to know the entire story for a long time, if ever. That being said, we do know that he died without a will, according to a letter published in the state-owned newspaper, The Herald. His daughter, 
and I apologize because this is going to be a disaster. Mrs. Bona Niapudzai Matsuhuni Chikore notified the master of high court's office that the family couldn't locate any will and offered a list of Mugabe's known assets, which included $10 million, four houses, a collection of 10 classic cars, and a farm. Now, none of the properties are owned in his name, according to the family's attorney. And additionally, there is no mention of the Scottish castle he was famously rumored to own or any of the numerous farms the state and thereby Mugabe himself seized ownership of during his controversial land reform program. Mrs. Grace Mugabe was listed as his sole surviving spouse, while Bona, Robert, Bellarmine, and Russell Gororatsa were listed as the surviving children. Now, intestacy law in Zimbabwe is not entirely dissimilar to the American system. So if he did indeed die without a will, his wife and surviving children would split his estate. I mentioned fear earlier as one of the main reasons we chose Mugabe as a subject for this episode. He certainly spent his life inspiring fear at others, but it may have been his own inability to overcome certain common fears that led to his lack of estate planning. Jackie, how does fear come up in planning for an estate? Thanks, Dave, for that introduction. I think fear can come up often, and it can come up in terms of people who die with assets and no estate plan. It can also come up with people who either don't revise their estate plans as frequently as they should or who don't have as many instruments in place to transfer their assets as they should. It's a very anxiety-provoking process to create your will and other, other documents that are passing along your property to your family or to whomever you'd like to leave it to. And people like to avoid it. People avoid things that they're afraid of. People avoid things that make them feel uncomfortable, especially when really no one needs a will until they're already dead. So it's an easy thing to let fall by the wayside if you don't want to confront it. Yeah, and it's really several fears that we're talking about here, right? Because you know, you have every advisor sort of knows about the the analysis paralysis that, mm-hmm. that, that people can just get when they're doing general planning and they just get too much information and it's overwhelming and they get spooked. But with estate planning, we're also talking about fears like facing your own mortality and there's much deeper seated things as well that just kind of pile on top of this, you know, sort of spookiness of the, of the documents and the legalese that are sort of inherent in just any lawyer's job. Sure. And I think that there's a certain type of fear when we're dealing with people like Robert Mugabe, which I wouldn't see in my practice, which is probably a fear of people discovering ill-begotten assets. So most firms in New York, at least most reputable firms, I know my firm, we would perform a know your client um, before accepting a client. And anyone who has assets that they're trying to hide that For example, I think a lot of these assets were held in the name of his political party. We don't have something like that in the U.S., but obviously a lot of reputable attorneys wouldn't be working with people who were probably avoiding a testamentary instrument or an estate plan in order to avoid, you know, disclosing where they got all of these assets that they've died with as a quote-unquote public servant. But the other type of fear, just in terms of facing your own mortality and even like looking at everything that you have and figuring out what am I going to do with it. So many people don't even like to call up and I do this once a year. It's actually, it's January 2nd and I'm calling every bank where I have an account and making sure that they have the correct beneficiaries on my account. Not assuming that they have it right or that they processed it correctly from last time I updated. I know a lot of people, I, I advise everyone to do that if something's passing other than through their will. You know, call once a year and just confirm that they have the beneficiary designation. I don't think a lot of people do that. It's annoying, it's time-consuming, and it makes you think, one day I'm going to die. And I'm honestly, I'm super glad you brought up beneficiary designations because it's something that I sort of shoehorn into other episodes of the podcast whenever I can. 
because I think sort of like pound for pound in terms of like estate planning bang for your buck, beneficiary designations may be sort of the best Mm -hmm. in terms of just, you know, keeping up, making sure it's okay. And it'll just do a lot of the work for you. And they sort of punch above their weight in terms of like estate planning documents. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I've seen this come up several times where people might have a valid beneficiary designation in place from when they open the account. But you have to keep in mind how many times financial institutions merge. So some banks have more formal requirements. Some banks, you can just go online and change the beneficiary you're leaving an account to. Click of a button. And some banks, you have to provide an original notarized document. And if those two banks merge, which protocol takes over? You can't really be sure unless you call up. So it is, you know, somewhat, it's an hour or two of your day on the first of the year, but it's a good time to do it. Things are a little quiet, hopefully, for everyone in terms of work and life and uh, keeping up with it, like you said, great bang for your buck. And you especially lose out when you have, you know, retirement accounts, things like that, that aren't going to a named beneficiary. Yeah. And especially important in terms of retirement accounts with the Secure Act recently passing, all those rules are changing for, mm-hmm. for you know, non-existing inherited accounts. And that's not really what this podcast is about, but just sort of an aside that that is something to really pay extra attention to this year. Now, this fear of sort of planning, this fear of mortality at least in my much more limited than your experience, a lot of it is, is front-loaded, right? It's a lot of like getting, breaking that inertia and getting things started. It's a fear of like starting the process. Like once the process starts, I think people find it more therapeutic and, and things get a little easier. But getting that first ball rolling can be real difficult. Sure. I, I think that, yes, once it gets started, it usually goes from there. Uh, I do have, of course, we all have a few instances where you send someone a draft and you just either never hearing from them again is rare, but you know they'll take a good amount of time to get through it. I also think that the initial conversations can be very hard. So if for some reason you're not leaving, if you have children and you're not leaving equal amounts to both children... You don't want to have a fight with either of your kids. So that's a conversation you don't even want to start. I think that sometimes it's best to see an estate planning attorney talk about your plan before you necessarily know how you want to bring it about and talk to that attorney about, you know, from their experience, what's the best way to have this conversation? And also, should you back down? So a common instance would be, One of my kids, I have two, and one has done very well financially and one hasn't. I want to leave the money to the one who hasn't done so well financially versus the investment banker. But then the investment banker says, hey, that's not fair. I don't want to be penalized for working hard. What gives? Talking to an attorney who's seen that 5, 10, whatever, 20 times can help you to, to know how to bring up the conversation, start the conversation. And it can also help you to know do I roll back my own plans to avoid conflict today with my kids? Should you change your plans based on what your beneficiaries want, basically, and based on preservation of relationships? You know, maybe, depending on the circumstances, I think you also want to think about, and this isn't something that a lot of people necessarily come to us with. They come to us with, how do I preserve my relationship with all of my family members? But how do you preserve the relationship for your family members to have after you're gone. Mm-hmm. A lot of times this can come up not just with kids, but also with, you know, you've left adult children and you've left a spouse who is not their other parent. You know, how do you preserve those relationships that have probably been or have often been, you know, years long, decades long, and perhaps this person has been somewhat of a parent to them, but they might have somewhat different 
financial objectives in the end. Yeah, this idea of a the blended family, I guess, is sort of the catch-all term here, mm-hmm. which can mean basically anything. But that that estate planning is especially difficult there because you kind of, especially nowadays, with you know so many so much divorce and and adoption and, and homosexual marriage and all the things that can complicate you know the tra- quote unquote traditional family mm-hmm. that you end up with these sort of webs of relationships that are all sort of held together by like one person. And then if you pull that one person out, it's very easy for everything to all of a sudden go to crap in that family because a lot of the people don't really have any connection other than that person. So just magically, you know, scooping him out of the equation, it's like, well, how's this going to look? So it can be very helpful to really sit down with everyone and involve, you know, non-parties really to the estate plan, but just to make sure that you're passing on a legacy and and then trying to keep family peace, which is largely the idea of most people's estate plans. Right. And yeah, if if something's not written down, if something's not discussed, people are going to have different interpretations of what so-and-so wanted. I mean, something is written down. They still have different interpretations. Yeah. But, you know, you can put something in a will, but there's always going to be other issues in terms of, you know, how do you share this asset that's been left in trust, but that all five of you have access to during the rest of your lives? You know, did mom want all of us to go to the beach house at the same time for the whole summer? Or did mom want us to divvy up the weeks? Things like that, where people can have differing interpretations. You're not going to put that in a will, but there are helpful conversations you can have before you pass it on, essentially. Yeah, and with the person there is the big important part. Yeah. You're not getting into he wanted or he would have wanted, because that can be kind of weaponized mm-hmm. um, in these family fights when, when they eventually break out. This is what he really wanted. And sure. You end up in like this kind of he said, she said, nobody knows kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've done a good job here of sort of piling up and making, you know, I guess the fear of estate playing seem pretty justified. We're kind of presenting it as this, as this mountain of responsibility. But I think it's also important here to realize that, you know, it's how you view it that that helps a lot too in terms of, yes, it's a, it's a space planning is a lot and it's a long process, but it's meant to be a long process. It isn't the sort of thing that you sit down with your advisor once and only bang out my estate plan this week. You know, the, these questions and these conversations, they don't all have to be tackled at once and they're not all going to come up immediately. You know, that's why it's important to have to view estate planning as sort of a, a long collaborative process as opposed to like a fire and forget situation. Sure, definitely. And you can put essentially a placeholder estate plan into effect if it's going to take you a really long time to come up with exactly what you want to happen to your assets. So for example, if you have a hundred pieces of art in a very valuable art collection and you haven't talked to your, you know, five kids and 20 grandkids about who wants each piece and you want them each to take something. You can still have a will in place and you can, you know, leave your tangible personal property in general to, let's say, your surviving spouse in the meantime, but you can get your, you know, testamentary bequests in place. You can get your charitable bequests in place. You can take care of what you know you want at the time that you know it, and then you can revisit it in three years when everyone's had a chance to browse through your artwork or whatever. I mean, yeah, especially, I mean, basically every estate plan is a temporary estate plan because things change. Uh, you know, children are born, relationships are made and unmade. You know, all of these things are very fluid. So it's, you know, the, uh, it's never going to be finished, mm-hmm. um, which I guess doesn't really help with the fear thing. Yeah. Like, this is just something you do for the rest of your life yeah. now. Um, but it's just a better way to look at it in terms of this isn't you know, so, like, just part of your life now once you do it. And it's, it's, and it's an important part of your life, even though it deals with your death. Yeah, sure. And even just putting a fiduciary in place, nominating an executor. This is who I want 
to take care of everything rather than letting people sort of think about, well, would I be good for this job? Or, you know, you might have your nephew who's real, a sweet person, but isn't great financially, who decides, well, no one else has been appointed. So I'm just going to try to go to court and become the administrator of this estate. And that's not going to service your estate and it's not going to be of service to your beneficiary. So even just getting the people who you want to control how your assets are distributed in place is better than not. And this is maybe just my personal experience, but you've mentioned when we were talking about you know, having to like chase down clients to sign documents. You know, in my you know, limited practice, you know, I did a lot of my estate planning work in sort of the clinic uh, atmosphere. So having people come in was sort of out of my hands. They would just come in. But I found a lot of struggle, a lot of the fear came in signing the documents and that there was some, you know, I would, we would have a wonderful relationship, getting everything together back and forth, you know, call me on the phone at home sort of thing, mm-hmm. like really collaborative. And then it's like, okay, this is all set. Let's sign it. Disappear. Mm. <laughs> it was yeah. just like, and I think that's a fear also that there's a certain finality. So like, it's one thing to get the conversation started, but then like, once you put pen to paper, it's like, oh, this is a real thing. This is my real, when I die, like all it's, it's gone from theoretical to like, okay, this is real. Yeah. I, and I think the idea or the fear is that you can't change things easily, which of course isn't true. Mm. And if it's, if it's a small change, you can do it by codicil. You don't even have to execute a new will. I think in terms of, you know, getting people in too, it's, it's a matter of, I think that sometimes people don't know what to ask for from their estate planning attorneys or what they can ask for. So sometimes we'll get people who come in and they've delayed the process and then they maybe haven't gone through the will page by page. You can ask your estate planning attorney to sit with you while you read it, if you want. Or you can, you know, ask for space in a conference room. That's not taking up anyone's time or money. And you can read it while you're there and call your estate planning attorney in at the end. There's no need to sort of make sense of the document on your own, especially if you don't understand certain legalese. And I think that sometimes people can be intimidated by just how a will is written. They're not always in exact plain English and maybe not want to go into evaluating it themselves, but not want to, quote unquote, bother their attorney or take up their attorney's time. But that's completely fine to ask as many questions as you have or to ask someone to even to sit with you and go through it page by page. And providing a written summary can be really helpful, I found, when people get their wills, especially if they're not attorneys or maybe aren't as used to seeing legal documents. Sort of in plain English, this is what this article does. And then let them come back with questions. I think that people tend to understand it and tend to go through their wills much more quickly when they do get that summary. Mm-hmm. I think from a professional aspect also, uh, this is, you know, getting a lot of these questions straightened out is where other advisors um, and other disciplines can come in and really help out a lot, especially because, I mean, once once the person has already come to you and made the decision to come to an estate planning attorney, like a lot of the battle has already been fought, right? Like the, the, they, they came in and now it's, it's still a challenge to get things started, but that's the big hurdle of even getting them to think about it it's kind of happened already. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you know, CPAs and financial advisors, by keeping estate planning issues in mind and sort of just, you know, they can, can A, sort of guide the client to an estate planning attorney when they need it. And they can also sort of inform the client of, well, these are some important things you need to talk to this person about. So they're not just going into an estate planning attorney feeling like a fool, being like, oh, I want a will. And, and you know. yeah. And it's also important to realize that all of these, you know, this is, these are all service industries. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to be scared of lawyers and advisors and but they work for you effectively. Right. And it's their job to do what you want to mm-hmm. a certain point. 
And so that's another fear, the fear of the professional, that they're going to judge you if you don't know something. Nobody knows what they know. That's the whole point. That's their, their whole job is knowing what the layman doesn't know. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a job. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to judge anyone you know, by these things. It's really important to sort of dispel that fear also of I don't know as much. I don't want to look like a fool mm-hmm. and these sorts of things because you won't because nobody knows. Right. And I think it's, it's important to develop a relationship with your attorney so that you can ask whatever questions. Um, you know, there are no stupid questions. Of course, we hear that again and again, but people are afraid to question things. And I will say also, people can come in with these ideas of, you know, this is what I know should pass according to my will, or this is what I know should be included in my will. But then it's just drafted in a way that they don't understand necessarily without that summary or that little crib sheet to their will that you've done what they've asked just in a way that might be a little different from how they thought it would be written out. And it's always good when you give someone a draft of a document to suggest, I think, you know, a follow-up call or a follow-up meeting. And they can take you or leave you on it. A lot of people don't need it, but some people do and won't broach the subject themselves. This is sort of the legal equivalent of like make your next dentist appointment. Yeah. <laughs> like as you're leaving the one you just are coming out of. Yeah. You know, we're just about running out of time, Jackie, but you know, I know we've covered a sort of broad swath of estate planning topics mm-hmm. here. Um, in terms of sort of, I think getting the ball rolling has been the, the biggest fear that I, I've seen in my practices. And I think that, you know, so what, what can advisors, l- lawyers or not, sort of take and w- some good advice for them to really apply to clients just to get the process started? You know, I think letting clients know that you can have an introductory phone call free of charge, it, you know, it's going to take, what, 15, 30 minutes of your time. Uh, a lot of people are going to end up retaining after you have that call. but being willing to sort of put out feelers and just let people spitball, if you will, let people tell you what they're, they need and what they're looking for without having them commit with an engagement letter and a retainer can be really helpful. I think also not pressuring anyone to just sign a document or to move too quickly. And finally, just letting them know that you understand family dynamics. You can't do uh, be in the trust and estates field without seeing some family conflict and how that plays out. Letting them know, one, you're not judging their family as dysfunctional. That's You're not a therapist and that's not your role. You're just seeing how can we get a plan in place that will sustain challenge and will actually be carried out. Letting them know that you've seen it all and that you're there to help. You know how to get around challenging situations and you know your client is never going to be the worst family or the worst person. I think people tend to have that fear too of, you know, my dirty laundry's on the table when I talk to an estate planning attorney. But and it's so much worse than everyone else. Yeah. I'm so ashamed. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's got something. And I think just coming with an openness to discuss that to some extent, not that you would ever discuss uh, another client with a potential client, but just being willing to sort of generally say, I've seen conflict and I know how to avoid it. Let's talk about that. Well, that's about all the time we have. Uh, Thanks so much, Jackie, for coming on. This has been great. And for those of you listening, I will uh, see you next time. I guess you'll hear me next time on uh, the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing.